Hey, I'm Alex, and this is Lunchbox Radio. And today we're talking about something a little bit... talking about Blade Runner 2049. Now, I did a previous episode, I think two episodes ago. That was kind of a special thing that I just recorded about the promotional short for this movie. Um, And if you're thinking of going to see Blade Runner 2049 definitely go watch that promo short. Um, but because it... Just go watch it because it's actually kind of important. Um, but I wanted to do an episode proper on Blade Runner since even though it is a live-action American property, it has had a huge impact on not just sci-fi, but particularly anime and things like Bubblegum Crisis, like the um, Ghost in a Shell and stuff like that borrow heavily from look and the feel and plot, direct plot points many times of Blade Runner, which is part of the reason why when you as the director, go, go to a anime director like Shinichiro Watanabe and say, I want you to do a promo piece for this, essentially a half-hour animated commercial for this movie, you get Shinichiro Watanabe turning around and saying, okay, who wants to work on this with, uh, with me and us? And you get studios like Gynax who are just like is there any way we could even do the in-betweening for this? Is there is there any way we could break our backs and do the most annoying part of animation which is the in-betweening for this project just because like we, we need to be a part of it like it would, if you watch if or when you watch Blade Runner 2022 Blackout. I encourage you to watch the entirety of the credits because, like, you'll just see things roll by and you'll be like, Gynax did the in-betweening? This other studio just did, like, photography? Holy crap. And it's like, the the reason it gets that amount of cachet is because it is insanely insanely influential in the way that many anime anime creators now think of like ways of telling those kinds of stories like um, Bubblegum Crisis is another anime that doesn't just that it's basically a Blade Runner-esque thing now in terms of the movie Blade Runner 2049. It's a really good movie. It's a really long movie. If you're going to see this thing, you're walking into, like, a three-hour-plus thing. I walked in at, like, 3.30. There were a couple trailers, some of which we'll get to, because there were some important trailers on front of this movie. Um, But, for the most part, I was there for... I think two hours forty nine minutes was the total runtime, 
And, like, that's a three-hour... You would spend three hours with Ryan Gosling and the replicants. Um, but... So, basically, this movie picks up uh, as a, as a sequel to the old movie. And without spoiling any of it, it does tie in the old movie in a really significant way. Um, it's, just, it's a really interesting thing because the old Blade Runner, while it was insanely influential, after it was released, when it was released, like, bombed its box office had a terrible, like, showing when it was, like, released on home video, even, I'm pretty sure. And it, that's, uh, it, so, it became this cult thing that, like, I think the first time I really paid attention to Blade Runner as a thing, I was in college, and my best friend at the time was, like, that was his favorite movie, to the point of where he had the cinematic poster think in his bathroom, which was only slightly less weird than the picture of Spider-Man staring, like, straight at the toilet, essentially straight at you doing your business, which we all begged his roommate to just, like, he please just take Spider-Man out of the bathroom. He makes me self-conscious. Um, but that was the first time I really, like, caught wind of Blade Runner. I think I... Actually, no, that's not true. I saw it when I was in, like, high school or something. Um, but uh, I walked away with it being... I walked away from it being, like, that was an insanely fun, like, experience. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen the first Blade Runner, it's not exactly a... Like, it has a story, but that's not... That's not the real point of it. It's going for a feeling and like a exploration of what of what cyberpunk looks like. It is in many cases the defining cyberpunk film. Like it, it obviously came out before the Matrix it actually predates um Ghost in the Shell, even. But, so that is, it's, like, that's its thing, and that's what it's trying to get across, and it spends, they spent so much of the first movie getting that across and putting that in front of you that this movie didn't have to, Blade Runner 2049 didn't have to do that so much. It, it, it did. It does explain things. It does explain what, like, what the replicants are, and all that stuff. But it doesn't need to dwell on it because you don't. It and you, as a viewer, don't need to because it's. It's a main. It's part of. It's definitely part of the main plot, but it's not the only thing to like focus on, especially when, I forget what the budget of the original was, but the budget for this thing was $150 million. It's like massive, ma it has a massive budget. It shows it 
it this thing grips money <laughs> and like grips just like we paid this guy to be like this person we paid this other guy to be this person blah blah, blah on and on down the line but uh, the fact that the sequel also allows it to be more story driven and where you were going to the original where you go into the original Blade Runner wa wanting the atmosphere and like the method, the method of visuals in it, you go into Blade Runner 2049 expecting that. So, like, there, it's like the holographic Coca-Cola billboard, or the, like, three prostitutes who approach Ryan Gosling, who is the main character, at one point, and, like, the way they look, and the way the entirety of, like, society looks just, like, they, they, uh, this is the bad future. <laughs> like, we, we fucked up hard. Um, but, it's really interesting, and it, it's a, it, it paints a vivid, it paints a vivid enough picture around the character for you to Notice it even if you're not focusing on, even if you're focusing on the character and the story, like you have to notice things. They have a a scene in like an open park, in like an open like square area where Ryan Gosling's at a table, and they zoom in and they take the time, much like they do in Ghost in the Shell, often to show you the surroundings before they introduce you to the character and like use some time to set the scene that they're in and then they get and then they get to the character and when they're getting to the character it's really interesting they pass this whole wall that is just a like push button vending machine and like at the top of it there's this girl just like dancing selling candy or something like this little holographic girl dancing selling candy um and it's just like there's just little details in all of that stuff and like that just shows you like advertising is gonna get fucked up once they figure out just general purpose holograms it's gonna go bad but um so look forward to that I guess uh, I just this thing is just visually just jam-packed with tons and tons of, like, visual flair and impressive set design and, like, effect design and computer graphics and the whole nine yards. It's, but the other thing that's really interesting, too, is that, like, we see it and we're like, ooh, this is cool. But they, and this is true of the first Blade Runner too, or as well. Uh, there's a scene if you've ever seen um, the movie, the anime movie version of Metropolis. Is a scene where the main character in that movie is just awe-inspired by this big holographic fish that just swims by, and you're just like. Whole, and he's just like, holy crap, you don't see that every day, or almost any day ever, 
and everybody around him is just like everybody around him and his um I think his uncle it, yeah his uncle are just like uh we live with the damn thing it it's like it fucking shines in our like windows at night whatever it's at it's at best an annoyance at least an a non-consideration and that's the way that everybody in this movie treats just like the space around them like it's just it's always really really just like none of them are overloaded they're just all used to the amount of stuff coming at them constantly in the way that somebody's from New York doesn't always walk through Times Square but when they do they might glance up at the billboard or they have to stop at a corner they might look at a billboard or something but then like it's not an awe-inspiring thing for most people for me it is because I like seeing because I'm a designer and I've worked in advertising I like seeing like the big billboards but for most people they just walk through and they're just like doing their business and all this other stuff is just superfluous like they don't have time for it. Like they're living life, and that's the way people. That's the way the general public feels in Blade Runner. And it's really interesting because to us, this stuff is super futuristic and super interesting, but to them, it's just what it is. And like the the idea that like this landscape is depressing may cross their minds, but they don't think about it because they think about it for too long. They get depressed. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting in terms of the setting is there's stark changes in what the settings are. Like, the setting in, and this is true of now, too, so, like, generally the way you can tell that somebody's rich is if you walk into their apartment and not chock full of junk. Rephrase that. You can tell someone's rich and they have taste. If you walk into the apartment, it's not chock full of junk. It's very streamlined, very simple, but at the same time, it's a designed space. And you, um, so as part of the plot, you eventually end up in, like, inside the Tyrell Corporation, which is a corporation that makes all the replicants. In the Blade Runner universe. And the first thing you're hit with is. All of the. Superfluous stuff. Has been immediately stripped away. And it's all. Super simple and super easy. And super clean. But once you you get out of that. You're immediately just inundated by just like. No, there's no square inch left. I mean, there's, there's a scene, there's like an interstitial, like, atmospheric shot, which, it, this movie knows how to use atmospheric shots in the same way that, once again, the original Ghost in the Shell used atmospheric shots. Like, it uses them to establish a feeling, to establish a mood, to and to also inform you where the character is. Um, there's a bunch of scenes in what is a very fucked up 
Las Vegas later on and just like Las Vegas has seen better days but they made sure to like give you these awesome big establishing shots that are really impressive um but no it's just it's the whole thing I'm, I'm struggling to describe it without going into the story because I really want people to go not just see but experience this thing for themselves and if you're if you're an anime fan and you're listening to this and you think to yourself like I'm on the fence I don't know if I want to go see it go see it and if you haven't seen the original Blade Runner before and you're an anime fan watch that movie. Not necessarily even because you like it or don't like it, because if you like it or don't like it, it's about seeing, like, you watch that and you see things that you see now standard. And not just sci-fi, but once again, in sci-fi anime. The, like, ideal of, like, human existentialism and, like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a real human? And all that stuff. All of that probably comes from Blade Runner. And it's just—it's a really fascinating thing. Even if even if you walk away from the movie being like, "Ah, eh, not for me," it's worth seeing for that for that reason alone. At least the original one. The. Blade Runner 2049, as I said before, is a lot more story-focused than the original one, and that might make it easier for people, because uh, there's a story to follow there, and, like, you can follow the story, and it's coherent, and it's not... It's not plot-twisty in a way that makes you angry at it after it does the plot twist wherever it does them, and you're just like, oh, no, like, you earned this, you got there on your own, good job. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating, and the reason why I held off on doing the podcast was because I knew I was going to go see this movie. I, I just, I bought late tickets because, I don't know, I'm a dum-dum. And I went to see it, and I wanted to record after, like, as soon as I could after I saw it. Because I wanted to give kind of, like, a fresh fresh thoughts on it and all that stuff. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is actually the trailers for... Before the movie, because I thought it was interesting. Um, the two I remember, at least, the two that, like, stick in my brain are... The first trail I've ever seen for Pacific Rim, I think it was called Next Generation, but it could have been called The New Generation, and, like, now, you can go into an old podcast of mine that should still be up called The All Cast, and you can listen to me and my friend Lauren rant about Pacific Rim in, like, the second episode of that. But basically, Pacific Rim is giant is giant robots versus Godzilla monsters. 
And that's the first one, kind of. And the second one, it's like... From what I can tell, it's just like... But what if we just had a Gundam party? <laughs> and we just made this, like, this whole thing about, like... Just keep spitting robots out to keep punching the monsters in the face. And just... Uh, Pacific Rim did notoriously, hilariously bad in the same way that um, Blade Runner did when it came out. It was just kind of like people, not because it was a bad idea, because I went to see it and it was like it worked out perfectly. It was just people didn't know what to do with it because people like giant robots, yeah. But this whole thing was so. Guillermo del Toro managed to make a live action anime movie. <laughs> somehow, like, he convinced the studio to let him do that, and they're letting him do it again. But now they have expectations tied to it, so they're like, oh, okay, this makes more sense, I guess. Um, but I'm pretty sure that one got a sequel because it did really well in China, so we're benefiting from it eventually. Um, the second one, the second trailer I wanted to talk about was actually the trailer for Ready Player One. Now, say what you want about the Ready Player One book. I listened to it on tape, I want to say, a couple years ago at this point. The picture it paints relies a lot on, like, 80s trivia night trivia like, 80s trivia night, tri- 80s facts, and, like, it, it, there are literal points in that book where you are essentially reading, like, a list of 80s pop culture things. But what I think is going to be interesting for that movie is how many of those things they get the license to actually use. Because it's all well and good when, like, some writer writes a book, and afterwards it sells a billion copies, like Ready Player One did. Most people, whether they loved or hated that book, read that book, and proceeded to love and hate it and Ernest Klein in tandem, usually. I think it's, eh, okay. But, so, like, there's a scene in that book where, multiple scenes, where they just used the ship, the Bebop, from Cowboy Bebop. And all I saw was like, oh man, like some, somebody's gonna have to call up Watanabe, who's like still probably fresh off his high from Blade Runner, from his Blade Runner thing, and just be like, um, can we maybe use the Bebop as a prop, essentially? <laughs> can we... Basically, they'd have to ask him, can we visually name drop the Bebop spaceship? But, um, and it'll be interesting to see how they work, them, how they work themselves either in pretzels, into pretzels, or work around the fact that, like, we just couldn't get this license to this game. So, it just can't be in here because we don't have a license to it. Um, but no, it's, so... That that was that'll be an interesting thing to at least see. I don't think I would see that movie unless it got fantastic reviews. Um, because it could swing either way. Even 
although Steven Spielberg is directing Ready Player One. Um, but those are the two trailers I thought were really interesting on the front of this movie. There's also a trailer for um, The Last Jedi, which has a fabulous, fabulous 70s style Star Wars poster for it. But I just look at it, I'm like, oh, more Star Wars. Okay, I'm not a big Star Wars person. Um, cool if you are, I'm just not. Another something I was into. But, in short, definitely go check out uh, Blade Runner 2049. It's out in theaters, literally, as you're listening to this. Um, it's totally worth the whatever you pay for it. Um, and But do know that it is a three-hour movie. You will not... You will not you, you, it is good enough for you to not feel that three hours, though. So, on that note, I will be back next week with, um, like, a regular, with a normal, with probably an anime episode. Um, but, thanks for listening, and if you like this, uh, go ahead and subscribe. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can also leave me a review on iTunes, which is super easy to do. Um... And let me know how I'm doing, and let me know, like, what you think, or what you don't like, or what you like, all that stuff. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Alex Cohan. Um, I post lots of drawings lately, because I'm doing Inktober. Um, both good and bad drawings. I will not testify to the quality of my skill, just that I have the skill there somewhere, somehow. Um, but yeah, so... Thanks a lot for listening. I will catch you guys later.